Hello and welcome to the ELO Network Podcast. This podcast is a recording of a presentation from the ELO Forum in Vancouver from November 2022. This session was presented by Doug Nix, Chairman of Stillwater Capital Corporation. Doug spoke on key ways to build value in your business. It's a delight to be here today. Are you guys ready for a change? Who's ready for a change? Oh, that's good. Um, as I've talked to entrepreneurs and um, business leaders over the past decade, the conversation often takes a familiar course. The first question is, Doug, what's my business worth? Did you ever ask that about yourself? What's my business worth? I tell them it's worth what somebody's prepared to pay for it, <laughs> which is um, not always the most satisfying answer. The second question is, how do I increase the value of my business? And we talk about some of that stuff. But over the course of the discussion, at some point, we get down to the matters of the heart, okay? And it comes out in many, many business leaders and entrepreneurs, this sense of, I'm tired, I'm burnt out, I'm lonely. Life is passing by way too quickly. Anybody feel any of this? Um, why am I the first one here in the morning, and why am I the last one to leave at night, right? Um, why am I working this hard? How do I stop this madness? You know, um, is it, and then the last one is, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? And these are the questions that I would suspect if, we, if you guys let your guard down, many of you might be saying, asking those same questions. And... You know, I started Stillwater Capital in 2002. I worked really hard to do it. It was me, my non-accounting wife, doing our accounting, and a part-time guy. That was it. And I was the business, you know, and we worked hard. I sacrificed. I asked my, my family to sacrifice. And 15 years into that, I couldn't ignore those questions anymore. I had to go, what's going on? Like, is it worth it? Right? When, when does the promised return come? You know, like, there are biblical principles that you'd say, let's apply these to say, if you, um, you'll enjoy the fruit of your labor. When does that actually happen? Well, you know, it led me then to a period of seeking the Lord and asking, Father, like, what's going on? And through that, um, a, a strategy emerged that I implemented in my business. And I'm going to share with you four key strategies that came out of that, that I think if you spend, uh, if you get your pens out, write them down, and you um, look at how this could happen in your business, you'll benefit from them greatly. So, but first, what I want to do is, I want to start, so we're going to talk about a foundation for value creation, four key strategies, we'll summarize it, and then I'll give you one vital tool, okay? So here's the foundation that I believe all businesses run by believers should be built on. Every business is a separate and distinct entity, okay? It stands on its own merits. Number two, the business must be built for long-term sustainability. Number three, there are great, great rewards for creating value in your business. And then the, the bottom line of it all, as we follow Christ, we co-labor with Christ in our business. Okay? So, um, 
Strategy number one, professionalize the business, okay? So the business is not um, about you. The business, you need to move the business away from being about you and being about the business. It's a separate and distinct entity. So where do you start? It'd be worthwhile to go through and look at your business and say, these are the things that only I can do, right? I did that, and it, was, um, it wasn't that comfortable for me. I did the deals, I got the deals. I was a repository of all the knowledge in the business, right? When I went away, um, nothing got done. So talking about going away, one of the things, what do you think of the idea of going away for a month, turning your email off, and turning your phone off? What, what would be left when you got back? Anybody? Yeah, probably not very much, right? So our, my recommendation in this is to go through and identify those places that you feel that only you can do those, and then start to extradite yourself from that. The next one is build a management team. So pr professionalizing your business, having a team below you, right? And then the next is act like a corporation. This is proper financial reporting, it's proper governance, it's, it's acting like it's a real business. The next, oh, sorry. the next one is systematize the workflows. So systematize means taking something you're doing and putting it into a fixed process. Now, um, simplifying and standardizing. It's amazing how many businesses owners that I talk to say, oh, it's, everything we do is unique, we can never standardize. I don't believe that to be true. It's not been my experience in looking at over 2,000 businesses. That's not true. And what it is, it's a lack of um, the willingness and desire to take your business and split it down into the different segment parts. So how do you start on this? We'll develop a game plan, map out one key process at a time. Now here's some real benefits. You cannot scale a business unless you systematize it. Okay, because at some point it's gonna break, right? Because if you don't have the systems in place, how do you, maybe you can go to 20 people, but how do you go to 40 people, right? So this is, this is critical. You can't scale unless you systematize what you do in your business. Uh, and then get your team involved. If you don't get your team involved in systematizing, what's gonna happen is you're gonna have to written out all of these procedures and policies and methodologies of work, and nobody's gonna follow them. Okay, so if you want to be dis, uh, pushing yourself out of the business, here's what you do. One of the real benefits that's happened in our business is as I've taken and systematized our workflows, what it's allowed me to do is disaggregate the functionality, right? So I'll just give you an example. There was a time in our business where the people who did the work had to get the work, right? And so it's, um, so how do you scale that? Well, you have to find another person with two great skills, a great skill of getting the work and a great skill of doing the work. When we systematized and we looked at the workflows, we said, you know what? We can separate those into finding a, an all-star person to get the work and then an all-star person to do the work. I see this in not-for-profits where, um, people are asked to 
to provide the, um, the care and compassion to the constituents and raise the money to do it. So what do you have to do in a not-for-profit? You have to be an outstanding fundraiser and a compassionate person, right? And so people, if the primary goal of the ministry is compassionate ministry, how is it that you're going to ask the people to spend that much time raising money, right? Kind of um, a, a little disincentive there for them to do that. So when we started to systematize, we could break it out and we could start looking at and saying, oh, we could find the best book writer. Oh, we could find the best researcher. We could find the best uh, contract reviewer, right? And that makes the hiring process a lot easier. Well, not that much easier, but a lot easier because they don't have to have that full content, uh, um, range of skills. And then what happens? Your labor costs drop. Because now you don't have to hire people with magnificent skills across the board. Right? You can find somebody who all they want to do is research and pay them what a good researcher is worth. Um, De-risk business vulnerabilities. This is a critical, a, dis, a critical thing for businesses. This is ex existential. Right? A disruptive risk is something that can have an oversized adverse impact on your business. So imagine you had one customer. Okay? And it's, I liken it to being in bed with an elephant. Everything's good until the elephant rolls over, right? And then it's not so good. So what happens if you have undue reliance on one customer? What happens? And that customer leaves. What happens if you have undue reliance on one supplier? And that supplier says, I'm going to do a different channel to market. What happens if you have one staff member uh, who has all the, the customer relationships or referral relationships, and that staff member leaves. I saw a business recently where the owner had um, wanted to sell the business, but he couldn't because he'd structure it where one person had 60% of the uh, customer relationship, and it was his, right? So one of the things that, um, if you can't replace that, you need to, at the very start, look at your contracts to say who actually owns this customer and what can you do when you leave. Now, institutionalized, and I don't mean put them in an institution, okay? <laughs> that's, not, that's not institutionalized. What I mean by that is across all sectors of the business, we should be moving to incorporate and make those relationships business relationships, okay? One of the things that I've done on that is I want to have multiple touch points in our business with clients' referral sources. So that if one person were to leave, we have lots of other contact points, okay? It's also markets, products, and channels. Are you dependent on those? The goal here is to look at those. We're, relate, we're relating to what you're Very saying. relatable, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's good. I appreciate the encouragement. An amen would have been good, okay? Amen. <laughs> Okay, and funders uh, for not-for-profits. So you're reliant on one funder, right? What a, like, you go to bed at night and you worry. Well, you shouldn't worry, but you do worry, right? Because it sits there, what happens if? So this is, um, so one of the things that we've done, um, and we've seen many of our clients do, is move customers to long-term contracts, if you can. So what happens is when we're selling a business, business owners 
think, oh, my business is great. Look, I've had these relationships for a long time. They're coming, they're coming, and they'll always be there. But the buyer looks at those, and they're assessing vulnerabilities in the business to say, uh-uh, I don't think they're going to be there because maybe they're tied up in one individual. If that individual goes, we're gone. So it's really quite important to do this. Increase long-term possibility. We shouldn't have to talk about this, right? But it, um, profitable businesses just don't go broke, right? And here's the thing. A lot of people um, seem to lose sight of it. It's all about the future. The profits that you made last year, two years ago, ten years ago, they don't matter. It's the profits you're going to make in the future that matter. Buyers, if you're going to sell a business, buyers are looking at what the future holds and not what the past holds. They're going to use the past as an indicator of what the future holds, but it's all about the future. So we've been working hard on selling businesses now on tracking out three, four, five-year growth plans. Uh, and it's interesting to see how the buyers in those uh, meetings are focusing on tangible growth in the business. So where do we start? I'm a big proponent of doing a one-page business model where you walk through what the profit of the business is, how you make money, looking for eliminating waste, pricing your products, uh, and services properly. When you underprice your products, here's what you're doing. Just, you're stealing from your family, okay? Think about that. You're stealing from your family when you underprice your products or your services. Then the other thing is you need to build sales and marketing capacity. I've seen lots and lots of great products in, in businesses that never get off the ground because the engineers didn't like sales and marketing, okay? So here's where we've been. Foundation, you see the four strategies. I just want to walk with you for one, um, one thing. Go back here. So we co-labor with Christ. That was, that's one of the foundational things. So here's, I was trying to hire people. We try and hire primarily Christians. And I'd, we'd had a hard time. We'd gone to the market. We'd hired a headhunter. We'd paid the costs of the headhunter. Nothing, right? And the headhunter came back and said, we said, hey, you said you're going to hire us all-stars. Or are these all-stars? You know what the response was? Uh, for Christians, they are. Wow, right? So just, I just finished reading um, uh, this passage, Isaiah 28, 23 to 29. If you, if you don't get anything out of, else out of this, try this, okay? And what it is, it's listen to hear my voice, pay attention to what I say. And it talks in verse 24 and 25 about how a farmer knows how to plant stuff, right? And then in 27 and 28, how to harvest stuff. But look at the highlighted verses, 26. His God instructs him and teaches him the right way. That's 26. 29. All this comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. Here's what happened. I went into the, my meeting room. I opened the path, my, my Bible. I sat there. I read that passage. I said, Father... I don't know. I don't know how to hire these people. We've tried everything. I, I, unless you help, I can't do it. And I, I read that and I said, as you instructed the farmer on how to plant, Father, would you instruct me 
how to find these people. And I'll tell you, something miraculous happened. Ten minutes. I just sat silence and listened. And a magnificent idea came. And two weeks later, we'd hired two people. Okay? Every time I've been in that position where I, where I don't know what the answer is, I, I sit and I pray that prayer. Father, as you instructed the farmer, would you instruct me? I encourage you to try it. I'd love to hear it. I put my email address on uh, right up there in the slide. So if you write that out, if you try it, I'd love to hear how it works for you. Okay? Thank you. Yep, just have a seat. Great. So the <clears throat> number will be posted on the screen, same as before. So definitely text me any questions you might have. And of course, this is quite a critical issue for anybody building a business, how to build and sustain value. So I've got a couple of questions to get started with here, and I'll integrate questions as I receive them from, uh, from people in the audience. One issue that comes up all the time is people versus systems, or maybe founder versus systems. So to build value, as you mentioned, you need to focus on systems, what can be done apart from the founder. So we, we sort of know that, but in your experience, why isn't it being done? Well, I think part, it starts with people just being too busy, right? It's the tyranny of the urgent, that you just, you're working flat out. It's a considerable investment in time. And then sometimes you, you and I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anybody else, nobody can do it as well as I can, right? So this is how we're going to do it. And I find that those are the two primary reasons. It's when it hurts bad enough that you, you have a hope of starting in those situations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So another question would be, what's an example where you've helped someone capture a significant amount of value in a transaction? Like, like what are some of the things you've done so that the person who's engaged you said, okay, this was quite worthwhile because I didn't know this, this actually led to a, a big increase in value. Oh my goodness. Well, we sold a company out of the States for almost a quarter of a billion dollars. They'd called us and said, if, um, if you get us a hundred million, we'll be satisfied. But what we did is we went in, they didn't understand their financial model, right? So we went in and recast their financial model and we we're, were able to present it as a future look with greater certainty because of the underlying contracts on the business. Mm -hmm. And we had two offers in the quarter billion dollar range. Mm -hmm. <coughs> mm -hmm. Do you have any, now there's lots of good books on negotiation. Do you have any basic tips that you would uh, share with people that if they're entering into a negotiation, you know, there's a lot of basic things like not giving up numbers first or et cetera, et cetera. But are there, are there some things that that you would see commonly that undermines someone's own value proposition. Yep. I find in negotiate, and I have to train my staff in this as well, people often negotiate what they don't understand, right? They're out there, they're negotiating, and they don't understand the implications of the topic that they're negotiating on. So one of the principal things there is you need to understand the area that you're negotiating more and better than anybody else in the room. Because then you have the advantage in being able to anticipate positions and not get caught into those traps. So would a practical example be if you're in a certain sector knowing 
what the value determinants are. So in other words, going in knowing this is how someone would value the business, and based on that, here's how, how I can substantiate my, my argument for my value. Well, I even see it on customers. Like when we're negotiating pr purchase price quite often, activity in customer accounts is, is an important consideration. And if you, if you just have a high-level understanding of what's going on in the customer accounts, without spending the time to drill down deeper and understand why they're doing what they're doing, it changes everything. You can miss a lot of the nuance in the discussions. And I've seen in mm -hmm. negotiations I, I, that a lot of people just need you to do the thinking for them, right? You need to help them think through and, and persuade them to see things that, like, I tell them, like, take a box like this and turn it this way and help them see it that way. And that's an important part of the negotiations that we do is help people see things differently. Mm. So there's a question here related to innovation. So, of course, it's important, especially at a conference like this, which is about entrepreneurial leadership. So innovation is important to businesses. How would you factor in the value of innovation? You know, if somebody said, that's an innovative company, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this company, they're innovators, they're leaders in their industry. Like, how, how does that get factored in? Well, there's a great article in uh, Harvard Business Review, 2011, by Clayton Christensen. It's called The New M&A Playbook. And Christensen talks about disruptive technology. And his position is, and we've embraced this ourselves, is the value of the business is set in the eyes of the buyer. So I as, a, um, I, as a seller, an advisor to our seller, I don't need to necessarily value that. Because it's hard to do. Because there's, an ec there's going to be economics attached to what the buyer has. So... Um, we sold a company that, um, they called them bundle, uh, or uh, hose bundles. We sold it to Eaton Corporation. And what it was is, you know, you go to a, a restaurant or a bar and you push one button, you get seven up and Pepsi and Coke and stuff like that. Well, um, it was an innovation. And uh, Eaton had uh, approached us and said, we want to buy this. Now, we didn't know it at the time, but we found out subsequently that they had the same product, but it was failing in the marketplace, right? So it was an innovative product, and we were able to stand and push the valuation. But here's another cool one. You got time for another cool one? Oh, you're going to like this one. So one of our... That was a rhetorical question. Okay, yeah. I, this I, was really cool. I'm just the prop. <laughs> Thanks, sir. Um, this is really cool. We, had, we were selling a company out of Markham that had developed uh, video streaming that they put in trucks and taxi cabs and stuff. You know the ones I mean? And um, this company had made it so it was device agnostic. It could fit on any camera anywhere, right? The, whole, the rest of the whole industry, they were, only, they were geared just to a specific camera. So we went and we, I tell you, we talked to 100 people. We got one offer. And, then, and so we went down and um, we sent our technology guy. After we got the offer, it was a member of, of understanding, and our technology guy went down into San Francisco and said, okay, I'm here, let's talk about technology. He came back and he said, you guys, we are underpricing this by so much. And what happened was they were, they were just like, they had nothing like it and they had a great need for it. So we, we learned that. And so what we did is we went back to the buyer and said, oh, price has changed, it's gone up. Well, I don't know if you've dealt with private equity before, but private equity loves to take the price down, right? It's called retrading, if you haven't heard of it. It's just, it's a horrible practice. 
well, you should have heard the private equity group at that point in time. How unethical is this? Like, we just done five other ones before where the equity group had tried to retrain. But that was one of those ones where we saw the, the innovation and the technology and we got the lift for our client. So it was a pretty cool story. That's, that's great. There's a question here. What are the elements of the one-page profit model? Maybe you can just describe yeah. what, just, just give us a, the nutshell. Yeah. So I'll give you just a real quick example. Use an accounting firm, okay? An accounting firm, um, typically their, their business model is this. We sell hours. We, and let's say we sell hours at $200 an hour, and we'll sell per person 1,000 hours a year, okay? So that's 200,000 in revenue. To get that, we have to pay 80,000 a year, right? So now you know that there's um, 120 in margin, and then you can figure out what your rent is and stuff, and you can build it up. So when I think of a business model, one-page model, how does your, your company make money at that level, right? And it can be across any product line, anything on software. We sell our software at this price, and here's our cost to deliver, and here's, um, here's the cost of our servers, and here's the cost of this. But doing it on one page, uh, for me, is the one that helps you understand. If you, can't do it, if you can't do it on one page like that, you're not thinking clearly enough about your business. That sounds harsh. It's not meant to be harsh. But I, I really mean that. Like, think through how your business makes money. So revenue, cost, fixed overheads. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to scale the business, now you can just say, okay, what are, what are the inputs that I have to put in to change? So if I want five more accountants, well, I might need more space. So now I can take five times 200, it's a million. We only have a couple of minutes left. If you have another question, just text it to me quickly. But I did want to squeeze this one question in because it's quite unique to Doug and his company. So they have a corporate chaplain. So if you get on their website, there's a fellow listed there as the corporate chaplain. And I remember when we first met, I thought, well, that's, that's pretty interesting. So in any event, maybe some of you have thought of this or you may not be at all familiar with how this might work. So Doug, can you just share why you have a corporate chaplain, what the person does. Yeah. So 11 or 12 years ago, I started a practice, a personal practice of listening prayer. And that's a listening prayer is, you know, you t take half an hour, you get out a book. I don't call it journaling. Uh, I just, just, it's listening prayer. And I'm writing it down because the, maker, the creator of the universe is going to tell me something, I'm going to write it down because I, I just out of respect. So I started doing that and it changed my life, right? It changed my life. And I looked at that and I go, oh man, this is after I'd done it for several years. I thought, since we hire primarily, predominantly Christians, I would love to be able to ask my team to be able to do this. And, and I thought, well, you know, the problem with that is we all want people to have a spiritual life on their own time. But what we did is we said, let's, we're going to pay. It's a company paid quiet time from 9 to 9.30 every day if you want to have it, right? So it's pretty cool. You walk in and there's our staff. Bible's open, listening, writing it down. And then I had this great idea that, oh, I'd love to be able to talk to the people what's going on in their spiritual life. And then my wife told me, Doug, that's not such a good idea, right? You're the boss. So, and, so I, and the voice of God and your wife's voice sound a lot alike. Very, very similar on this <laughs> <Yeah>. one. <laughs> so, so what I did is I, um, uh, Nancy and I prayed about it, and we, uh, we brought a, uh, a chaplain on staff. So you, a day a week he comes in. And it's a Chinese wall around him. He, whatever is said with, between him and the staff, uh, it stays there. And everybody in the office um, spends an hour with him every second week. 
It's pretty cool. It's, it's optional, not mandatory, and everybody does it. It's, it's rated number one or two of the best things at Stillwater Capital. Right? It's really, really cool. But I just ask you, if you had somebody in your group working for you who committed suicide, right? How would you live with yourself, right? How, how would you go, I didn't see that coming, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. like those are the, the issues of life, right? And I didn't want to ever be in that position where the Lord's given me people to care for and, and protect and let something like that happen. So this is a good tie-in to the next session because one question you could ask people that came up at Oxford is if you thought of your employees and you said, what is the one non-business issue that's impacting your work. So what is the biggest non-business issue impacting your work? So we went through that at Oxford, and it was mind-boggling. You don't realize that, oh, so-and-so's you know, spouse is dying of cancer, has got two months left. Or I still remember one fellow said to me, I went through a very messy, protracted divorce, and not one person in business that I knew for years and years and years ever asked me. And of course, because he spent so much time on work, that was, in a sense, his community. I mean, of course, he had a church and stuff, but he knew so many people so well through business, nobody ever asked, how are you doing? So anyway, so the corporate chaplain, great role. Well, just, just a footnote on that. The pastoral staff at most of the churches are so busy with triage with people bleeding out, that they don't have time. They literally don't have time to care for anybody else, right? So I feel that as employers, we have an obligation, and, and a, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to let, um, let our compassion for people show in this manner, okay? Mm-hmm. We, have a, we have a co-op student who's Muslim. Uh, Sarah goes and sits in and, with the chaplain, mm-hmm. right? It's just awesome. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty cool. Yeah. So, so one thing I mentioned, just so everyone knows, there's, uh, so some clients of mine, they'll do things like Doug does. They'll hire their own, a person they know and have them as a corporate chaplain. There are actually organizations, there's a couple, one in the U.S. and one in Canada, that are corporate chaplains USA. So there, if you just Google it, there's groups that have a system of providing corporate chaplains. So Doug, we just have a couple of minutes left. So if you can just provide a, a final thought, maybe related to the, the topic of your presentation, building value, maybe just some final thoughts uh, as we wrap up. Yeah. You're going to work hard no matter what, okay? And you can either work hard keeping doing the same stuff, or you can stand up and say, you know what, if we just kind of change direction a bit, we can end up in a really good place. The benefits are, you could, like I went away for three weeks to uh, Europe with my wife in August, I didn't check my email, I didn't check phones, and, and the business still ran. Uh, there's people, um, profits are being generated in the company right now while I sit here and talk, right? And Nancy and I are going over to Vancouver Island. That's a benefit, right? I have people who are concerned. So you're going to have to work hard no matter what. Why don't you just take some of this stuff and apply it and make your life better? Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to share it with others and visit our website for more free resources at elonetwork.org.